So, anyone in here ever question your salvation? Ever wonder, like, am I actually saved? So I had a conversation with a wonderful gentleman that has been walking with Jesus for decades, has a besetting sin in his life that had erupted again, and that's why we were having a conversation. And he said, Matt, because of this sin for the first time in my life, I've really wondered, am I even saved? Anyone ever feel that way? Because of life? Because of questions you have? Because things don't quite work out like you think they should? Like, am I saved? Well, in the words of Joe Biden, <laughs> after his meeting with Vladimir Putin, he was asked, how did it go? This was his response. He said, the proof in the pudding is in the eating. And it takes a phenomenal amount of discipline for me to leave it at that. <laughs> but I will. All right? <laughs> the proof is in the eating. We have John, our pastor in this epistle, who's been trying to train us and to guide us and to get us to grow and to know something. And he's going to say in here, you can know the proof is in the eating. And so I think there are flavors that you can see in your life that will help you know, hey, I'm saved. In spite of a sin that might beset you or a failing that might happen to you, you can know, hey, I still have the flavor of salvation. So four areas that John is going to say, this is how you know. You can know for sure that you're saved. So flavor number one is sweetness, being sweet or love. Check this out. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It has a creator. And whoever loves has been born of God. When you love, you're born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Test number one, flavor number one is, are you sweet? Do you love people? So, love is a very popular word, is it not? Love everyone, love anyone, love unconditionally, love wins. Girl, you got to love yourself, right? There's all these like slogans where we try to kind of define love. But I would say this, if you want to know love, then you should really ask the being that invented it. 
If I really want to know about a Tesla, who should I go talk to? Elon Musk, because he invented it. If I really want to know about the Apple phone when it first came out, who should I go talk to? Steve Jobs, because he invented it. If I really want to know about web-based algorithms, who should I go talk to? Google, because they invented it. If I really want to know about COVID-19, who should I talk to? <laughs> I know. It's terrible. It's Father's Day. Give me a break. <laughs> Give me one. <laughs> oh, mattedgewaterfellowship.org. Go ahead. <laughs> this text says God created love. It's his idea. So when we talk about love, at the very best, we can be plagiarists. At the worst, we're heretics. We're stealing from him. So if we want to really know about love, we should say, what does God say about love? What does it mean? Or we are hijacking this word and making it something else. So what has happened to us in the 21st century in America is we have this idol now where we get all of our answers, not from revelation and from God. We get all of our answers now from science, right? It's not Simon says or God says, it's it's not Simon says or God says, it's science says. That's where we're at today. So what does science say love is? A chemical reaction. That's it. It's a chemical reaction in your head. So men, think about this for a moment. You find the woman of your dreams. You buy her a one carat diamond. You get down on your knee and you say, sweetie, please marry me because I am having a chemical reaction. Oh, there will be a reaction, but probably not the one you want, okay? So yeah, you can go with science, or you can say, wait a second, if God designed this, created it, maybe I should ask him what it means, because when it says God is love, what it's saying is this, the DNA of the universe runs on the fuel of love. And when you find out what that fuel actually is, you begin to participate in the very DNA of the universe because God is love. So what does love look like? Let's just look at a couple things that are right here in this text that tell us about love. Like number one, number one, love gives. Look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was manifest. This is how this abstract concept called love that everyone kind of has these crazy definitions of, this is how it was manifest, how you can know it, how you can see it. It was manifest that God sent his only son into the world. Love gives. It's giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Love gives. We have a saying at Edgewater, boys take, men give. If you ask my boys how many times I've repeated that to them, they'll tell you hundreds of times. Hey, boys take, men give. When I put my son Myron to bed and I pray for him, 90% of my prayers will be at the end of my prayer, God create in Elijah and Myron and me hearts of giving because boys take and men give. So number one, how do you know you're loving? Because you're giving. Number two, love is anxious. If you keep reading, verse 10 says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but he loved us and sent his son. Love is anxious. God didn't sit up in heaven and say, well, I'll just wait till they figure it out. I'll wait till they start loving me and then I will love them. I'll wait for them to get their stuff together and then I'll help them. That's not at all the Bible. The Bible is, you guys are broken, you can't figure it out, you're really messed up, and I am gonna pursue you. I'm gonna come after you. It's not that we loved him, it's that he loved us, and he did something about it. Love is anxious. It's always looking to get and to restore and to move forward. So when I used to do premarital counseling with couples, I'd always tell the husbands that at some point, I'd tell the husbands this, listen, Your love needs to be anxious. And what that means is this. You go, when there is a fight in your relationship, and I knew that they were engaged at that point, so they're like, we will never fight. (laughs) All right, whatever. When you finally get past that in the first month of marriage, when you finally get past that and you have a fight, right? Husband, it is your job to pursue and restore that relationship. Because too often, husbands will just sit back and be like, forget it, man. And the wife is the one that does all the work in restoration. That's not how it's supposed to be. You are the one that's supposed to do that. Well, how does that work, Matt? What does that mean? I say, here's what it means. It means when you have fought and you are in the bed at night and you are as far apart as that California king will allow you to be, the only thing that's holding you on that bed is the the comforter that's just wrapped around you. You're leaning out like, oh, do not touch me, right? In that moment, the Bible says this, don't let the sun set on your wrath. Because what happens is this, a little bit of precipitate comes out of your heart and it settles into it and it begins to make you bitter and layer after layer after layer builds up month after month, year after year, and you get a hard heart towards your wife or husband. The Bible says you take care of it. You stay up and fight if necessary. You take care of that thing, right? So what that means for you is this. It means you lean over and you tap her on the shoulder and you restore. But Matt, it's 99.99% her fault. Well, you tap her on the shoulder and you say, I am sorry for my 0.01% of fault. (laughs) I'm kidding. Do not do that. That would be a moron move. If you say, I am sorry. That is not the husband I want to be. It's not the relationship I want to be. I don't, do not want to do that again. Help me not to do that. And you don't do it like, so now that, I, that I've apologized, do you have something to say? <laughs> no? Well, forget it, then I'm not sorry. Listen, our model is Jesus. He defines love. Not our culture, not our friends, not our parents. Jesus does. And Jesus came to restore us when it was 100% our fault. He tapped us on the shoulder and said, I'll make this right. He's our model, right? Love is anxious. It's looking for every opportunity to restore shalom and forgiveness. It's anxious. Number three, love is painful because it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is painful. I don't think there's anything more painful in life than love. No one can hurt you more than someone that you thought loved you. No one. There's nothing more painful in life than love. Jesus took my pain upon himself, even though he did not deserve it. 
it's painful. Love is going to be costly. And if you don't understand this about love, when love gets ugly, you'll be like, hey, I didn't sign up for this, I'm out. Well, then you don't know what love is. You signed up for some fraud. You gotta understand it's going to be costly. It's going to hurt you. You gotta know that. Well, Matt, this kind of love sounds really difficult. It is. It is. So a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with one of my kids about two foster boys that we brought into our home a number of years ago. One of them was a newborn baby addicted to opioids. And the other was his three-year-old, almost three-year-old brother when we got him, Hunter. And Hunter's a good kid, good boy. But he had been through trauma in his life when they had found him, when DH found him, he was in a car by himself in a parking lot, not even three years old, and had a dog bite mark that was festering on his cheek. So just, you know, you have a lot of compassion for him. So Hunter, um, great kid, but when, when he got upset or something, when something didn't go his way, he did what I call speed bagging. So he just put his head back and he just start throwing fists like that, just hitting whatever and whoever was in front of him. That's just the way he dealt with things. And so we would try to like help him and, and work with him. Well, Myron was just a little bit older than Hunter, um, three and a half. And Myron sometimes would be on the receiving end of Hunter's speed bagging. And Myron is, he is the sweetest boy in the world. Like I was born Henri, he got none of that. Like he is just a sweet boy. And so Myron, the way that he would deal with Hunter was just so kind and so nice. And so you're just like, man, son, I, can't, I just can't believe how good you do with him, how kind you are to him. And so after one of these events, my wife was talking with Myron, just the sweetest human on earth, and like, hey, thank you, thank you. Hey, Hunter, time out for you. Myron, thank you, you're awesome. I appreciate how you are dealing with Hunter during this time and how you're turning the other cheek. And Myron looked at my wife and said, well, you know, mom, one time I did hit him back. <laughs> I'm like the kindest man in the world was like, he got me one time. It was just one time too many. Right? And we can all feel that. Like, that's just one, you've speed bagged me one time too many. Ah! So, how do we do this? It seems impossible, right? You always got to come back to the cross. You always come back to the cross. You have to look at what Jesus did for you and me, right? Here's the truth. When you're at the cross, here's the truth the best of us and the worst of us are not that far apart. If you're really honest about it, the very best of us, the Myrons of the world, are not much different than the worst of us, the Mats of the world. They're not that different. Especially when we begin to compare ourselves to Jesus. Here's what I say it is. It's grass at the foot of a redwood arguing about who's better, who's taller. It's ridiculous. And it was this one who humbled himself and became grass just like you and just like me. Are you kidding? We can't humble ourselves a little bit. We can't have empathy for people. I mean, just like Jesus. Matt, that's hard though. I think we already do it. This is what I've shared with people. I've shared this. Listen, if your children, or if an adult rather, treated you just like your children treat you, how would you think about those people? Right? You'd be like, yeah, I'm done with them. 
And yet somehow God has given us a love and a capacity for our kids that they can run over us and trash us and do all kinds of stuff to us. And we're constantly reconciling and forgiving. Why? Because there's this incredible love that God's given us for our kids. Well, if he's given it for our kids, don't you think he has the capacity to give you that same kind of love for other people? He totally does. He totally does. But they're adults, Matt. No, they're boys with beards. That's all they are. Right? And that's all. Give me compassion for them. Are we sweet? Are we getting sweeter? Are you able to love in a way that you weren't able to love previously? John would say that is proof positive that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are saved. Number two, proof, flavor, is are we salty? So Jesus Christ says this, that we are to be salt and light, that we are to let our works so shine out among men that they see them and it brings glory to our heavenly father. Are we salty? So check out verse 13. By this, we know. Here's how you can know definitively you're saved. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Now, I'm going to guess the majority of us in this room would say, as we read the Bible and seen how God's spirit moves through people, whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's in the book of Acts, where we see God's spirit moving through his people, we say, I want to be a spirit-led believer. I would guess the majority of us would want that. When I talk to people in transition, whatever it is, graduating from high school or from college or changing a job or getting married, one of the things that they ask me over and over and over and again is, I just want to know if this is God's will for me. Like, how do I know this is God's will? How do I know this is God's spirit speaking to me or maybe just me, you know, inventing things or maybe it's just indigestion from Aunt Dorothy's triple cheese enchiladas. Like, how do I know? Right? We all struggle with that. We all wonder, what's the proof? What's the proof that this is God's spirit leading me? I want that. Here's what I think. Here's what I think you can know. When you see an ambulance, when you look at the front of an ambulance, ambulance, what do you see? Right? Now, what does that say? Does it say, ek na lubma? No, but how do you actually read that? The only way that you can read that clearly is to see the word in your rearview mirror. See, a lot of times I think in life, when we see things at the time, it can be confusing. It can be ek na lubna, like what in the world is happening right now? I don't understand this. But it's only when you've driven a little ways and you can reflect back through your rearview mirror that you see, oh, oh ambulance. Now it makes sense. That actually was God's leading me. And let me give you a story about this. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had this little event that happens. And it's very much like this. He looked in a rearview mirror and he said, oh, it was God. So look at this. This is Jeremiah 32, six through eight. Jeremiah said, the word of Yahweh came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, 
for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of Yahweh and said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. I love this last phrase. Then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh, right? How good is that? You have a prophet of God, a guy who authored the scriptures, the best-selling book in history, who said, yeah, I think God was speaking to me, but I'm not sure. And there was some kind of space of time, maybe it was a month, maybe it was six months, I don't know, that a cousin came and said, hey, by the field. Oh, okay, that was God. When he looked in the rearview mirror, okay, that was God. I think the way that we see God's spirit move is very often by looking in the rear view mirror. And one of the best ways that I have been able to look at God's work, his spirit in me doing things is this process called journaling, where I just write out questions I have, dreams I have, thoughts I have, impressions I have. And then from time to time, I will go back and read my journals from 20 years ago. It's amazing. A while back, I read a journal from way back in like 2002. And I was reading about like what I thought God was putting on my heart. I want to be a pastor. I was that time just working as an engineer. I want to be a pastor. How do you open that? I'd love to do it in Grants Pass, but I just saw no way of it ever happening in Grants Pass. Never would it happen here. And so you can ask my wife, I was willing to go anywhere. We would take these trips and every town I'd come into, I'd be like, God, is it here? God, is it here? And my wife had one requirement. If we relocate, here's the one requirement. It has to be somewhere warm. That was her one requirement. Well, I got this call back in like 2002 from Rick Cohen, a friend of mine, pastoring a church in upstate New York, who said, there's a church, the senior pastor just left. He's joining me on my staff here. The church is wide open. The senior pastor has told me that I could help select the replacement. And I think you're the man for the job. And I was like, yeah, where's it at? He said, it's in Burlington, Vermont. That is Burlington, Vermont, right? And so I am overjoyed. And I tell my wife, there's an opportunity. She says, where is it at? I said, Burlington, Vermont. She says, is it cold there? I said, it's so cold there, the politicians keep their hands in their own pockets. That's how cold it is. (laughs) I'm overjoyed. She's crying in tears. And then two days later, Rick Cohen calls me back up and says, hey, an assistant pastor stepped up and took that church. And in my journal, I was just writing like, God, why would you do that to me? Why would you give me this false hope? This, yeah, let's go do this thing and then just snatch it away from me. Why? But now I look in the rearview mirror and I'm here on a warm Father's Day. Praise God. I say, praise the Lord. I think about what God is doing through this body. I think about the fires we had last year and how we opened up this facility and people that were losing everything were able to come here and the body just came out. We had more stuff. We couldn't give it all away. We're like, you've just, it was overwhelming to me. And I say, praise the Lord. Wow. It makes sense. In the rear view mirror, I see it. Praise the Lord. I think about the opportunity to 
start Edgewater Academy and, and what that means and what that could mean. And I say, praise the Lord. I think about yesterday just being down here and, and Mark Scudstad and I were on the top of the little ramp sending these cars after car after car after car after car frying in the sun. And I say, praise the Lord. How fun was that? That was so awesome. This is incredible, right? When I think about you guys, well, most of you guys, no, all of you guys, I say, praise the Lord exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I could ask or think. In the moment, it was nubala, whatever it is. But now in the rearview mirror, God, I see your spirit moving. I see your spirit moving. I see the good works that you are doing. Wow. How are we getting salty? Are there good works? Are we flavoring our community? And I think the best way to know, is God's spirit moving through you and me? Rearview mirror. Maybe sit down and, and think today and write out some stuff and you'll be amazed at, wow, I used to have these concerns. I used to have this idea or this dream and God, you brought it to pass. Or maybe he hasn't yet. Write it out. Write it out and see, and watch how God begins to do things with you, amazingly. Your salt, your light, good works, bringing glory to your Father. Thirdly, third flavor. I just call it the favorite food or the favorite flavor of John. Check this out. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be, singular, the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. There's proof. There's proof. John, his favorite flavor, right here. How many times... In the last three months, as we have studied through 1 John, how many times has John said, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is it. Jesus is the Savior, right? Like 47 times. I don't know how many. I don't write that down. Just time. I could have preached a message every Sunday on this. Because here's the thing. John is a Jesus guy. Jesus is not a side hustle. Jesus is not the appendix. Jesus is not um, the footnotes. Jesus is it. It's number one. It's his favorite flavor. And he keeps coming back to it time and time again. I've had the chance now in 20 years of ministry, actually going back really to 98.6, I've had the chance now to kind of read guys, great preachers, who have finished their course with joy, no moral failing, none of that in their life. And I've been able to kind of see the progression of their life, read their early books and their middle books and their end books. And here's what I've noticed about great preachers. In the beginning, there's something where it's like this kind of like proving time, like, hey, I'm smart, so listen to me. So I'm gonna quote books and quote authors and, and try to impress you a little bit. I think that's in every one of us. And then there's this kind of middle stage they seem to go through where it's more like sage wisdom, I've lived some life. I've figured some things out. I want to help you do that, sage wisdom. But what's amazing to me is at the end of these great preachers' lives, they just become Jesus people. Like, it's all they want to talk about. They become just like John here. Like, it's just about Jesus. It's like 
the more you read the Bible, the more you begin to see this thing's just pointing to Jesus. We're in the book of Judges right now on Wednesday night. It just says there's no king. There's no king in Israel. And so every man did what was right in his own sight. And it is the darkest, grossest book in the Bible. And it keeps telling you, you need a king, right? And then Samuel says, we get a king, and he's rotten too. We get a better king, and he kills somebody and commits adultery on his wife. Ah, right? It's, you need a better king. The whole book is just pointing to you, you need Jesus. That's what seems to happen. It's Jesus becomes what it's all about. So if you read Paul, something interesting happens with Paul. And I think it's why the older you get, the more you're a Jesus person. So Paul, in the beginning of his writings, he kept trying to prove he's an apostle. I'm an apostle like everybody else. I'm one of the few, right? He keeps saying that. But then in his middle writings, it's more like, hey, I'm a believer like you guys. I'm just part of the congregation. I'm happy about that. And at the end of his life, this is what he says. Actually, I'm the chiefest of sinners. There's like a movement. At the end of his life, Paul's like, I need Jesus more now than I ever have. I need his grace and I need his acceptance more today than I did 40 years ago. I need Jesus. I think that's why they become Jesus people. I'm finding that in my life. I want to be more like Jesus. He is compelling. Someone just asked me, how do you preach to a Buddhist or how do you preach to a Muslim or how do you preach to these guys? And I say, I tell them one thing. Jesus' life is the most compelling life in history. Read it. That's what I tell them that I want to live like him. I want to look like him. His grace and truth is amazing to me. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be conformed to the image of the son. That's what happens. You're like, that is life. That's why Paul says this in Philippians 3.10. He says, all of my accomplishments were, were pretty amazing. He says, I count them as a pile of dung in comparison to the knowledge of Jesus. He's a Jesus guy. He's a Jesus guy. John the Baptist says, I must decrease so that he can increase. Are you Jesus, people? One of the ways you begin to know you're saved is you're like John. You just become a Jesus person. I need him more than ever. I see the wickedness of my own heart, and I realize I need Jesus more than ever today. It doesn't mean you're not tempted by some other flavor of the month, but you keep coming back to your favorite flavor. I need Jesus. That's how you know you're saved. It's what you see in the life of John. Then the last flavor. It's a flavor called umami. Have you heard of that? It was actually kind of spelled out about 25 years ago. And it means savory or meaty flavor. So Father's Day is today. The grills will be fired up. What are you going to put on that grill? Tofu? I mean, you can. I'm not going to judge you. We're going for salmon, though. I want some meat. I love salmon. So we're going to get some salmon. We're going to grill it up. Meat. So what's the meat? What's the meatiness of the proof that you know that you are a child of Jesus Christ? I'm going to put it as this. You're fearless. You have a courage in you. But it's a certain kind. Check this out. It's verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. 
How do you have a confidence when you will stand before the king of the universe? How are you going to have confidence on that day of judgment? What's going to say, hey, I expect to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What gives you that confidence on that day of judgment? Well, he's going to tell us. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Here's the meat, the savory flavor. It's this, you're fearless, but it's a certain kind of fearlessness. Like, it doesn't mean you're, you don't fear anything. Like, there are things that you should be afraid of, right? If a hurricane's coming, you should be afraid. That, that's bad. If there are forest fires ripping through your neighborhood, you should be afraid, right? You should be afraid of carbohydrates. They will kill you. There are things to be afraid of. This is a certain kind of thing that you and I as believers should not have any fear of, a specific kind of confidence that when we stand before Jesus Christ, we will hear, well done, good and faithful, faithful servant, right? And it's the fear that's taken away because you know you will not be punished. There's no punishment for you and me. And to me, this is a core theology of how you see God. And how you see God is going to be how you relate to him. So if you think for a second, when you start thinking about God, when you're driving in your car or when you're awake at night, what kind of image comes to mind? What kind of words do you think about? Is he an ogre? Is God up in heaven waiting for you and me to make a misstep so that he smites us? Is that the way you see God? Because sadly, that's the way a lot of people see God. And that kind of begins to do this to our faith. It changes God from our heavenly father into a cosmic Santa Claus who's making a list, checking it twice, trying to see who's been naughty and who's been nice. And if you're naughty, he is going to get you. Punishment is coming for you and for me. So then we have this really awkward, weird fear of God. We're always worried he's gonna get us, right? So we have a fight with our spouse. We don't, we let the sun set on our wrath. We wake up the next morning. We're driving to work in our car. It's kind of bothering us and boom, a tire blows out. So what do you think? God got me. All right, yep, he got me. You tell a little white lie and your training goes out. Oh, God got me. You gossip. Your kid gets the flu. God got me. Honestly, if that was true, with 7 billion people on the planet, how busy is God? Right? Tire, tire, training, training, training. Flu, flu, flu. That's it. Pandemic. COVID-19. All right? I mean, it's insane. We begin to misrepresent the very character of God. That's the wrong way to look at it. You got to come back to Jesus. What did Jesus do on the cross for us? He bore our sins. He paid the penalty. You and I are no longer first 
Thessalonians 5, 9, we're no longer children of wrath. God's not mad at you. Do you know that? God is not mad at you. If you can let that sink into your soul and begin to be the way that defines God, you become fearless about this. You become, it actually changes your life because you're joyful. Like, are you kidding? The creator and the sustainer of the universe isn't mad at me. I'm one of his sons. I'm one of his daughters. You know how crazy that is. You start to smile more. You start to be happy. Like, people will think you're weird because you're happy. Like, how can you be happy? Are you kidding? How can I not be happy? There's no more punishment. I will stand confident on that day of judgment. This is meaty. This is meaty. If you want proof of your salvation, just look at your flavors. Is there a sweetness to you? you, Are you growing in love for people? I hope you are. It'll bless you. Are are you salty? Is is there an ability for you to kind of look back at your life, even now as you think and say, oh, God has used me. His spirit was guiding me. I couldn't see it in the moment. It seemed backwards and mixed up, but now, oh, I see it. He's used me. Do you keep coming back to the centrality of Jesus? I just call him the deep end. Everything else is a shallow end. It's about Jesus. It's about him. I need him more today than I did before. It's about Jesus. And there's just a meetingness now. The way that you look at God is so changed. It's so you repented of the way you used to see God as an ogre wanting to smite you. No, he's my heavenly father that loves me. Well, that's it. That's it. Man, I'm failing on those things. I'm not doing those things. What about me? Well, check out this verse. I selected this because of Father's Day. It's from the King James Version because I like the way it says it. When, not if, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. When, right? Dad, when you fail. Matt, when I fail, right? It's not if, it's when. It's why the older you get, the more you realize I really need Jesus, because <laughs> it's not when, it's if. Like God's word is a mirror. I read this and I say, oh my goodness, I need more love. Oh my goodness, I need more salt. I need more of the spirit. Oh my goodness, I need more fearlessness. Oh my goodness, I need to make Jesus central more and more. That's what it does to me. It's a mirror, right? If a mirror shows me I'm dirty, what do I do? Just be like, oh, that's a bummer, I'm a dirty, and walk away? No, I wash up. We have a way to wash up. It's not about getting dirty. The Bible says this, the righteous man will fall down seven times, but he'll get back up. How do we get back up? We repent and we say, Jesus, help me. Where I am weak, would you be strong? The mirror has showed me this weakness and I want strength there. And only you can do that for me. Like every single Sunday, we come to the table. And the reason why we come to the table is it's a door for you and me to get washed up, to come to Jesus as we actually are and say, make us into your image. Fill us with you. Transform us. So if you have the little cup, grab it if you would. Could I get one of those? Jim, could I get? I'm missing one. Oh, test. Caught it. So Jesus, this morning, this Father's Day, 
We hold your broken body. And for many in this room, myself included, I read this text, and yes, I know I'm moving, but man, there's so much more to be done. I like Paul say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I live, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. May I die today to those things that are destroying me. May they be crucified afresh. And may you live through me. May you do that for every heart in here that has heard the mirror of Scripture and has seen themselves in its light. Where we're weak, would you be strong? So as we each strengthen the body, let's eat together. And we hold the cup. cup of forgiveness the cup that takes care of the winds when the cup that says you're coming back for us that gives us hope I ask as we drink sin would be put into remission proof would be dropped into our very hearts today that we are your children and that you love us. And we drink in confidence today of forgiveness of sins, of no more punishment, of your soon return. And may we have great hope. Let's drink together. Amen. <clears throat> so we will sing one more song. After that song, there'll be people up here that would love for the opportunity to pray for you. Whatever weight you've brought in, whatever thing is causing anxiety, it's an opportunity to cast it upon him. You can get prayed for. We have baptisms. What a great day to be baptized. Father's Day. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened and the Father said to the Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Maybe it's your day. If you're doing well, have a great, wonderful Father's Day. Would you stand with me?